and welcome to Happy Place, where we explore the hidden depths in all of us, one chat at a time. I'm Fern Cotton, and today we're dialing up writer and journalist Pandora Sykes. I think what can be really dangerous about wellness is that there's nothing wrong, and I can't stress that enough, there's nothing wrong with doing yoga if it makes you feel good, or going in the cryo chamber, or the flotation device, or forest bathing, or gong bathing or all those things nothing is wrong with those things but when they're marketed as something that will make you a better person or make your life better I think that's really irresponsible Pandora has a brilliant book with a title I think about every day it's called how do we know we are doing it right the spoiler we don't but it's a lot of fun exploring what that means for a good 40 minutes together and I really hope that you get something from that too lots of burning questions from me Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And now, here's the show. Pandora, it's so lovely to talk to you. I think this has been a long time coming and I'm, I'm so excited that you're on the podcast at last. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So look, your new book, thank you so, I have it right here. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for sending it. I, I massively enjoyed reading it. And as soon as I saw the cover, I was like, yap. Okay, there's going to be stuff in here that I definitely need to read. The title of the book is How Do We Know We're Doing It Right?, and I think like most people out there, I often either say to myself or think, like, why am I getting it wrong? And I mean life, you know, why, we all, I think we all feel like that. Why am I getting life wrong? Um, first of all, I'm sure you felt the same, otherwise you wouldn't have written the book. And, and secondly, why do you think that is? It came partly from personal experience, but actually more in the conversations I just saw happening generally and culturally. They weren't specifically being talked about in terms of people saying, oh, I'm doing this wrong or I'm not getting life right. It was more just a generalised anxiety about which is the best way to live a life and what is the best option to take. And the book kind of took its form from this idea that we, if we're lucky enough, we have a lot of choices now. But instead of seeing them as options, we've begun to see them as obligations. So we're trying to do everything at once. We're full-time working and for many of us, full-time mothering. And we're seeing a gazillion people a week and then keeping up with everyone on social media. And our circles have grown so much wider. So the amount of people you're trying to keep up with is way more than it ever was in in the past and actually I think that's what's been so strange and so interesting about this year is the kind of shrinking of your life which has had so many negative benefits obviously but for a lot of people it's also made them do an evaluation of how they want to live their lives and who they want to be in them yeah it's so true I think that sort of 
collection of people, like you say, that's grown does cause a subconscious anxiety. Like I forgot one of my really good mates' birthdays last week and I was so mortified. But I just don't feel like I can keep up with everything because we've also got this sort of multifaceted life now where we've got all these means of connecting with people on social media or just text, WhatsApp, calling people if you can be bothered, maybe meeting them if you're allowed at the moment. And it does feel overwhelming. Do you think most of us are just at overwhelm all of the time? I think the birthday thing's really interesting because I only remembered the exact date of birthdays when I was on Facebook and now I'm not Mm. anymore. I don't get reminders. I'm sure I could figure out a way for my phone to do that. But as we have previously discussed, that's beyond me and my technical (laughs) capabilities. I think many people are really overwhelmed. Certainly that's something I've really struggled with uh, since having my children is how to fit them into kind of the bigger picture of my life without feeling overwhelmed. But Yes, I think that I think that people are particularly overwhelmed right now, obviously, for pandemic specific reasons. It's really rare for you to be engaging in just one thing. You know, you're listening to a podcast while you're driving or you're checking your email while you're watching TV. There's always more than one thing going on. And women do it more than men. Like scientifically, they do it more than men. And we're also better at it. But just because we're more proficient at something doesn't mean it has a positive effect on us. And I think that kind of overwhelm comes very often from not having a clarity of feeling. You're not, there's never a singularity in your task. So something I have tried to do in the last couple of years is do one thing at a time and kind of immerse myself more fully in it. And as a result, I am much less present on my phone because there's just only so many hours in the day if you want to get through them in a way where you don't feel like you're gonna explode. Well, this is it. I think, you know, I hate to point fingers, but I think phones probably are one of the biggest problems in our lives because we can even do several things at one time just on our devices. You know, if we want to be listening to something, emailing, also then quickly flitting over to to have a quick peek at what our mates are doing. It's just a bombardment of information constantly. And I also... You know, we've got a choice around all of this, of course, but it is difficult to dodge it at times. And I do wonder if also that is stopping us from trying to do new things or experimenting in a way that perhaps people would have been, you know, more freely willing to do because we're so worried about judgment. And I don't know if judgment's got worse or we just are more aware of it because it's visible rather than just people's thoughts in their heads individually. We're now seeing thoughts as text on our phones, seeing people's judgments, people's opinions of things. Do you think that's sort of capping our ability to to try new things and experiment in life? I think the idea of choice is much more loaded now because of course we do have choices around all those things, but you have to look at the context within which those choices are made. And when you are receiving a kind of overwhelming barrage of information that this might be the best way to live a life. And we're also subject to kind of more lifestyle trends than we ever have been before. It's why I was so interested to look at the wellness trend, which has kind of metamorphosed into metamorphosed not sure how to say that word, into (laughs) something that women are often using actually to make themselves feel bad about themselves. Um, It's a way for them to think, oh, if I do this, I might be a bit better. I think as you say about the judgment, yes, I think we're just more aware of it now because everything's visible. I don't think it's that everyone's become horrible people and we used to be lovely people. It's just that a lot of it used to be behind one another's backs and now you have the ability to connect with anyone without any 
prior kind of consensus. So you don't have to say to someone, could we have communication? You can just connect with anyone. So all those boundaries are at kind of nil. And I also think as well, we need to look at the mediums through which that's refracted. Like, you know, Twitter, Twitter is a business. It's an algorithm that rewards um, anger. And a lot of social media Mm. rewards, it doesn't reward ambiguity. And that's something that I'm really seeking at the moment is ambiguity because things certainly do feel like they've become really binary. And that was why I chose that slightly risky title because it makes it sound like a self-help book and it's not, there are no answers, just a lot of questions. is this kind of binary idea of am I doing life right or wrong? Of course, you're doing it neither. You're just doing it one way. Mm. Yeah, and and of course, like historically, people have not thought like this. This is such a new concept that we could be living life in a good way or a bad way. You know, if you look back as near as a hundred years ago, people were just surviving. People just wanted to not die of you know a, a common illness or or, you know, die of starvation in many parts of the world. And in the UK, you know, looking at Victorian times, they weren't looking to live their best life. So it is such a strange concept that we've now not only, you know, we understand that notion, we now put pressure on ourselves because of it. And that is, I think, mainly exhausting. I think it is and it isn't new. It's this idea of what is a good life is actually eternal ancient philosophers were looking at you know what is what is a good life and funnily enough busyness isn't new either in victorian literature there was a lot of that and every time there's a new advent in communication whether that's the telegram the telephone the television people freak out because it's another thing to navigate what i do think's new is this constant anxiety over it and a very widespread anxiety and not And not just because obviously this is a privileged conversation to have, because if you're worrying about the life you're leading, then you're not worrying about paying your bills or having a roof over your head. If you're able to then kind of worry one step further. But I would say that it's much more people are doing it than ever have been doing it before. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely it, isn't it? Because before it it probably would be, you know, the the upper classes or the upper middle classes that would sort of have these concerns. Whereas these days it feels like, you know, en masse, everybody's looking to have the best experience, the best Mm -hmm. life. And are we not, in terms of that then, um, stunting our own growth? Because, you know, from personal experience, when I've been through particularly tough times or have been had setbacks or big challenges, we all know this, it's fundamentally where we grow, it's where we learn, it's where we have a deeper understanding of ourselves, of, of life, of those around us to you know, cultivate empathy, compassion for others, etc. By only re- looking for the best, are we not stunting our, our growth in some way? Definitely, because also it places an emphasis on the end product, the goal. Yeah. And we know that, you know, we, there's that ridiculous term that we sort of laugh about a bit, goals. But there is quite an insidious and damaging message to goals because it values the last part of the journey it doesn't value the process at all and it's the process where you learn the most where you get the most enjoyment or it's or it's where you do 
the hardest bits. But that actual final goal is not necessarily a particularly rewarding moment. And that's what that's led to something called arrival fallacy, which is a yeah. psychological term about how you're like, oh, if I just get to this point, then da 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 Like, we all know that, you know, oh, if I can buy that dress, I'll look like the person I've always wanted to look like. Or if I can get that job, I will be the professional I've always wanted to. Or if I go on that holiday, you know, it goes on and on and on. But then you you get to that and you think, oh, because you're expecting kind of violins and cymbals and rainbows and a pot of gold. And that's just not the way life works. And also it's, it's never been how it's meant to work. There's a Czech philosopher that I'm very fond of with the world's most complicated surname. He's called... <laughs> It's spelled spell extraordinary. He's called Cheek Sent Me High, but it is not spelled like that. And he, I don't love everything he says because he's a big proponent of uh, positive psychology, which dictates that, you know, you can be kind of happy if you turn inwards. Whereas actually, I think there are uh, political and social structures that mean that not just anyone can find happiness within themselves. But something he did say, which I think a lot about is that the world, I'm paraphrasing here, but the world was not constructed with human comfort in mind. And I think because life has become very friction free for a lot of us now, if you think how easy it is to get our groceries, our new clothes, you don't need to go to the cinema anymore, you can stream it, you can talk to multiple friends online at the same time, you can book a flight and be on it an hour later, you know, all these things which mean that those pockets of friction or setbacks in life just have become smaller and smaller and what that does is it means that when something comes along an obstacle we we find it harder to deal with yeah. and we we don't see that as part of our path or our journey we see that as something unwelcome that's going to throw us completely off um and I and I include my, myself in that like you know I I think the way the world is geared now means that for control freaks you can feel like you've got everything just so and then you know a pandemic happens worst case scenario or other things happen and you feel like I don't have a clue what's going on I don't know yeah. what I'm doing yeah I know that resonates so much because I am a massive control freak and you know even down to sort of having my house tidy before I can even begin to work or do something otherwise I just feel like I'm free falling and it and it you know it can that can be quite sort of destructive and and also time consuming and boring and I think going back to your earlier point about looking at this end goal and and thinking that's that's gonna for me it means I think I'm gonna reach this place of peace which never quite arrived so I even felt it this week because I've had this really manic weekend I worked all weekend and I kept thinking right you know, as long, as long as I can get to Thursday this week and then, then I'll, be, I'll feel great, I'll feel happy, I'll rest. I don't know what the hell's going to happen on Thursday. Well, I do, actually. There's going to be a second lockdown. But, but outside <laughs> of that, I don't know what's going to, you know, mentally and cognitively be, you know, be, what will be happening in my head. I have no clue. But, I, you know, we all still have these goals and, and these assumptions that we're then going to feel OK. And, and, I, and I worry about this, you know, a lot you know what am I running from there what what am I trying to distract myself from I'm not wanting to be in the now what what do you think that is I think what we do now is that we expect to feel things I think this comes back to this binary world we live in we expect to feel things completely and wholly so happiness to us now is kind of perfection seamless perfection and 
actually it's a contrastive state it doesn't exist without sadness and stress and all those other things and it should be something that we experience at the peak of our joy rather than all the time so something i think i mean god what do i know but something i think that would be useful is if we try and focus on having those pockets of happiness or those pockets of contentment and largely i think that's what we should be striving more for is not happiness or joy there's a debate over you know which is which and what means what is is a sense of contentment there's a buddhist uh, saying ataraxia which just means kind of without massive struggle so just this kind of like level and that's what i most strive for actually is just feeling as you say not even feeling necessarily super spa like peaceful but just a sense of peace in who you are that you're doing yeah. what you're doing is good enough and that the life you've created is good enough and that is definitely a key message of the book is the good enough um because i think that tempers this idea of the best quite well no it, it absolutely does and i think it boils down to acceptance you know whether you're going through something brilliant or not so there is a level of acceptance and also i think um normalizing emotions because we have categorized emotions to sort of think there are good emotions and there are bad emotions whereas you know we're not going to be able to avoid any of them we're all at some point going to feel all of them and i think normalizing them is is so important and also seeing value in them you know i now at the point i am in life and you know the experience the life experience that i've had although there are parts of my life i would like to have not to have lived through I can see so much value in them. And I wouldn't be doing this bloody podcast. I wouldn't be writing the books I'm doing unless I'd felt those feelings and experienced those things. And I'm still trying to work them out and still trying to find ways to not have panic attacks, etc. So I think it's, and I, and I don't know again if that's worsened because of how we communicate with each other. And, and again, I don't want to point fingers, but you know, social media is a, a sort of arena where you don't really see much varied contrast with emotionally what's going on. It tends to be the extreme joy, happiness, even if it's just on the surface level. So, yeah, I, I guess it's just about that normalisation of, you know, you're going to feel sad, you're going to feel angry and it's totally all right. I feel quite torn on this because I agree that social media does only show the best bits, but I also, like, I'm not one that when I'm at my lowest ebb would want to share that publicly. Not because I'm ashamed, just because I don't think it would be good for me. I don't think that sharing is always an act of catharsis. Can be for some people, but not for everyone. So I would always prefer to keep those things private, I think, for the most part. And I know a lot of people do feel like that way. And I also think as well, with the social media showing good stuff is we've always used those mediums of expression as kind of a highlights reel. You know, when you make up your photograph albums, your family photograph albums, you don't put in, this was grandma the day she wanted to kill grandpa. You put in, this is grandma and grandpa on their 80th wedding anniversary or whatever. So it is, it is a natural inclination to present the best bits of ourselves. And I do sometimes worry about the pressure on women to be externalizing all their good stuff on all their bad stuff because i think that can have ramifications as well on the other hand i think that something that we are really struggling with in general is that we now externalize so many things and 
I think that is brilliant in so many ways. You know, the way our generation is able to talk about how we're feeling and to have conversations about stuff that my parents would just never talk about. Yeah. On the other hand, it does mean that we are constantly externalizing how we're feeling and labeling those feelings. And sometimes I think it stops us from moving through them so easily. Yeah. And I do not want to be an advocate for bottling things up. I really don't. But I do think there's interesting conversations to be had. I don't think it's like a net good to talk and a net bad to not talk. I think it's more complicated than that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's two things that I'd like to pick up on there. The, the first being perhaps, you know, because I don't want to vilify social media because I really enjoy it a lot of the time. And, I, you know, I think it's a great way of connecting with other people. So there, of course, will always be a responsibility if you're of influence to to post in a way that, you know, is right for you and that you feel is, you know, going to be hopefully helpful to other people if that's your jam. But probably the responsibility lies more for all of us in how we choose to process and digest what we see. So rather than taking it all as complete reality and and we're all guilty of this and thinking that we should therefore compare ourselves to those images that's the bit I guess where we need to take responsibility and and then secondly you just said something so brilliant there which I know you talk about in the book as well which is this sort of visibility and that if we're not sharing what we're eating wearing experiencing and and that isn't visible to other people then it then it lacks in value and I wonder if that is reversible can we start to see more meaning in just the experience rather than the sharing of it I think what's really scary is that there is now an opinion with some people that if you can't see evidence of someone having done something then they're not doing something or they're not doing meaningful work and that was something particularly interesting I think that emerged from the time of the protests for Black Lives Matter is there was a lot of stuff happening online black squares being posted and uh, charity links and petitions and books and things but then it also put an emphasis just on what was happening online and obviously the most important action most of the time I think the most important action happens offline and there was that tension between, well, if you need to go, if you want to go off and you should be going off and doing that offline stuff, you don't also have time to be on the online stuff as well. And I think we need to allow people to choose to pick their poison sometimes. Not everyone's going to be naturally inclined to be sharing everything about their lives online or the meaningful acts they're making towards society. And that's definitely something that I've um, experienced myself and also just witnessed from scrolling through social media or seeing discussions we've had so on a personal level something that a challenge kind of I set myself which I found quite interesting is I thought okay well if I'm not going to post the worst bits online I'm going to try and resist posting the best bits as well so now often when I have something I'm like oh I, you know I don't know I love this picture or that was a really special moment I think okay I'm not going to get it online and it's quite an interesting exercise 
sitting with it and not sharing it and what i've realized i just do instead is i just text a few friends instead and tell them about it which is i think probably for me more meaningful mm. though there's such i think there's such beauty in something being you know absolutely just for you you know and i and i say that being someone that is a big sharer i really like to talk about stuff and um some parts I still find deeply uncomfortable, but I do on the whole enjoy sharing. But then when there is something when it felt either really special or actually is something that I'm personally just still working through, which there are big things, it feels really sacred to have things that are just for you. And I, I guess it's, it's about getting that balance. Um, there's a phrase that you write about in the book, and it's something that I probably only learned about a year ago from watching the Goop Lab. Um, <laughs> and that is optimization of self. When I first heard that, I was like, what the fuck is that? I don't know mm. what that means. It sort of transpires. I don't like that phrase very much because I don't know what you believe the meaning to be. What the take that I have on that phrase is that it's all about you getting the best experience out of life, you know, getting what you can out of it, the biggest and the best experiences, which again, I think feels perhaps a little two dimensional. I don't know what you think about that. I think it's completely exhausting and I think it's really dangerous when it's self-optimization, which is all about making your body better, almost beyond its kind of biological capabilities, which is why you see a lot of these kind of Silicon Valley signs like Jack Dorsey, who's the co-founder of Twitter, or Peter Thiel, who invented PayPal. You know, Jack Dorsey does all sorts of weird kind of, he basically believes in stoicism. So he'll do like one meal a day or he'll do these fasts. You know, he's got his cryo chambers. He hangs upside down in the morning. I mean, there's so many things that he does. And then Peter Thiel wants to live till he's 120 and is working on a lot of these Silicon Valley guys. They, they want to live forever. And I think that whilst not everyone who is kind of, um, you know, I'm not saying that everyone who works at Goop believes that. The self-betterment is all about kind of becoming stronger and more efficient. And there's also a really big aesthetic element to that as well, which I think we need to be kind of aware of. You know, we think, oh, we don't have the beauty ideals we used to, you know, heroin chic isn't cool anymore. We've finally become more diverse in terms of the kind of imagery you see in the fashion industry, for example. But that comes then with its own, its own issues, you know, with something like the Kardashians, which in one way is this very different beauty ideal. They're curvy. They have a much more kind of ambiguous beauty to them. But then there's also a lot of plastic surgery involved. It's no easier a beauty aesthetic to achieve than it is when it was like the Sweet Valley High ideal of being white, skinny, with blonde hair. And all of that is kind of, I think, connected to wellness. I totally know what you're saying because Happy Place often gets lumped into the the wellness thing because people go well what is it oh let's just say it's wellness and you know maybe parts of it are but I don't 100% align to what the modern day notion of wellness supposedly means which as you say is really vague and nebulous and could mean buying a pair of yoga leggings or it could mean you know drinking a, a mushroom drink that makes you go you know you spin off your head or whatever I, it's just it doesn't seem to be one thing and I think all I'm trying to do with certainly the podcast and and this sort of ongoing conversation that will unfurl in 
hopefully lots of different ways with the album and different things we've done. It's just to me, like wellness means just feeling okay. And that isn't something that you can always buy. Like it might help in terms of if you need therapy, etc. But it's, it's more than that to me. It's just about feeling okay. I think what can be really dangerous about wellness is that there's nothing wrong, and I can't stress that enough, there's nothing wrong with doing yoga if it makes you feel good, or exactly. drinking the turmeric latte if it makes you feel good, or going in the cryo chamber, or the flotation device, or forest bathing, or gong bathing, or all those things. Nothing is wrong with those things. But when they're marketed, a lot of it is how it's marketed to us. Yeah. When that's marketed as something that will make you a better person or make your life better, I think that's really irresponsible. And there is a lot of quackery around the wellness industry. You know, one of the examples I give is my best friend is a dietitian, which requires a four-year degree. But dietitians are often confused with nutritionists, which requires yes. a two-week certificate. And it's just stuff like that that makes me really, really nervous because there's just so much nutribolic as James Wong calls it. <laughs> you know, all of this raw diet, eat clean, yeah. alkaline water, all of these, so many of those kind of foodie trends actually can be debunked. And the other thing about wellness as well that I think we need to remember and a writer called Amanda Mull puts it really well is it is the wellest among us that have access to wellness because it is more often than not unless we're talking very basic self-care and there are some great people like Nadia and Katia and Noreen Phillips do uh, their self-care advice I love because it's about like sitting in the bath for five minutes or lighting a candle in the morning yes. small things that some people might sneer at but that can be really transformative but most of it is really expensive and all that means is it's just yet another privileged activity and wellness was actually created in the 60s by this man called Halbert Dunn to be something that had political and social tentacles to it it wasn't just about the individual self it was about keeping society well and we've become I think completely detached from that because obviously we live in a very neoliberal society where it's just all about the self now and that was never how it was designed no and you can see that because I think especially during this pandemic for me wellness or just feeling okay um, is fundamentally about connection to other people. That's how I certainly dug myself out of a hole, you know, years ago now, is talking to other people and feeling like I wasn't isolated and alone. And I think the pandemic, again, has really hit home that connection, community, knowing what your if your neighbours are okay, like, you know, shamefully, the pandemic has been the first time where we've really worried about our elderly neighbour and we'd been out shopping for him a couple of times. Before that, it hadn't crossed our minds. And I think that is wellness, that, you know, and knowing that you're part of something. I don't, think I don't think there's anything more grounding and nourishing than feeling like you're part of a gang or a collective. And that goes for even when you're a teenager and you align with a certain band or, or genre of music and you feel part of something, that is wellness. So I think the problem with it is perhaps, you know, since it, it was sort of devised and people started having the conversation around that word wellness, we've, it, we've gone from thinking it, it's something that where we can all feel collectively great to now, how can I feel okay on my own? How am I gonna feel the best? And, and again, you know, you, you just said something a moment ago about the word clean. And there's all these words that are like clean and pure. So we've gotta have like clean food, a clean aura, clean thoughts. And it's like, we're humans. We're all a bit clean and a bit dirty. That's Mostly just the dirty. Fact. Mostly dirty. dirty. So dirty. 
I like what you were talking about there about because that's community, isn't it? And we definitely all need to feel a bit more rooted in community, I think. Yeah. But then that as that online, I feel like has become something a bit scary because it's made as tribal. Yes. And then something you were saying earlier about like where do you do your learning is human beings are really inconsistent we're always in a state of flux and we're a group of selves not just one self but on social media we kind of expect this seamlessness otherwise we think oh that person's not being true to themselves that's not on brand that's not authentic so it does take away the ability to experiment i think a bit because you've got not only are you doing this own sort of self-surveillance which is where we now kind of try and see ourselves through everyone else's eyes before we do something but we're also then receiving feedback the whole time. And obviously that depends on what kind of person you are and what kind of job you do. But I think a lot of people now worry about what people will say online before they try something new or do something that they're not so known for. Yeah. Or even just have this like big shift in their emo emotional education and start behaving a little bit differently, start talking a little bit differently. Um, yeah. And I think that's really scary, is that it might stop us from being actually our full selves. Oh, no, absolutely. I, I, I think that is completely the case. And, and, and has there ever been a time where people are more keen to show, and you talk about this in the book, their authenticity? You know, everybody wants to be authentic, talk, authentic, uh, talk authentically and, and demonstrate their world in the most authentic way. And, and then it becomes about trying to be authentic attempting to be authentic they're words that kind of you know compared with authenticity but surely authenticity it just is it's you and like you say that's not that's never going to be one thing that's there's going to be fluidity there that you're going to change and morph and mold and and that's where the problems arise in the modern world is that there's so little acceptance of that people want you to be one thing only and that you know i've i've experienced that in my career Oh, you, why are you doing all this stuff now? You used to just be on the telly and the radio. It's, I changed my mind, quite frankly. Just changed my mind. Yes, yes. No, me too. I, I was a fashion editor for, I think, three, four years. That, you know, that was it in the last decade. But I will always, I think, when I do something new, get, go back to writing about shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People, I think, you know... We're all guilty of it as well, but we all kind of see somebody as, as one thing. And when there's that fluidity or, or that change, we, we sort of struggle. Oh, I can't put you in that box anymore. It doesn't make sense. And that's, that's the strange thing. Also, something that you, um, that you talk about in the book is fashion. And, and I, like you've just talked about, you know, when, you know you, you're, that was your background. That's where you came from. And I had I'd sort of forgotten how crazy fashion had got until I read that chapter of your book that it's become so fast so ever-changing nobody can keep up with it and if you look back to your childhood I'm older than you but you look back to my childhood and I think oh my god it really really wasn't like that you know there weren't there weren't new clothes in the shops even month to month and it's it's gotten out of control and, and we all know um environmentally speaking that, that that's a huge problem do you think enough is being done to to combat that We've been talking a lot, although not necessarily taking action, have we? You know, the government yeah. rejected the the last idea, which was, I think, adding one penny to everything sold um, to go to the kind of 
sustainable uh, disposal of it. Um, but we have been talking about the environmental impact for for a little while, and obviously Stacey Dooley's documentary kind of opened a lot of people's eyes. So I was less keen to write about that because I just thought there's I can't add anything more valuable, I think, that conversation that so many people are already making really meaningful um, comments on and, and moves to better. What I wanted to look at is the kind of psychology that had brought us to that yeah, point, to yeah. that to that point where we felt like we needed something new in order to feel new and where we now live in a time where there's not even just trends there's micro trends mm. and a time where people are buying clothing taking pictures of it and sending it back and i found that a lot of it stemmed there was kind of a confluence of things that happened is it was obviously the internet and then it was social shopping where you were seeing what someone was wearing on social media and shopping and i know now every time i log into instagram i want to buy something so yeah. it's a pretty it's a pretty clear link that and also there being now so much choice which i think makes people feel like they have to be shopping it's now so easy to do that it becomes just this lunchtime hobby you do it unconsciously you can check out in under a minute's flat you don't have to go hunting for something it's just all there online and something i found particularly interesting was this this kind of um emergence of online only faster than fast fashion which can be turned around really turned around really quickly they don't have you know any stores they're just e-tail websites they are aimed at young women and they normally come with different payment options like Klarna so you don't have to pay straight away which again I think creates this whole idea of this life is just yours if you can just grab it you know who cares if you don't have enough money who cares if you don't have a party to go to buy that you know ridiculously formal dress because that's another slightly odd thing is all these clothes are so like they're going out out clothes and people are not going out in them most of the time not now and, and of the stores that really struggled have struggled this year during the pandemic the only ones that have not seen a drop in sales are these e-tail websites because it's not really making any difference to why those girls bought them they bought them they took a picture they put it on instagram and they sent it back it, it wasn't necessarily even for the real world it was yeah. for kind of just this again i think that can be tracked quite a lot back to the kardashians and reality television yes. and that's not specifically to blame any one person but just reality fact. yeah reality tv like the internet and social shopping was a huge part of the way we shop and also this notion that we can get that right or wrong you know that's really strange i'm mm. sure that's always been present in in terms of sort of fashions historically you know we, we've we can see looking through different historic eras there's been a real silhouette and that most have sort of followed that but it, it does feel like again that can get quite nasty now and maybe that's because we are reading comments rather than them just being thoughts in people's heads but the, the fact that you could possibly get fashion wrong or right is bizarre because surely that is simply about self-expression do you remember when and they don't do it now because it's like we're much more kind of aware of stuff like this or that doesn't mean it you know doesn't happen other places online but do you remember when heat used to have what was their version of like hot or not? So they would like oh, circle yeah. someone's cankle yeah, and then they would have... circle of shame, I remember. I think I've been on that many a time, I'm sure, back in the day. <laughs> and around the Oscars as well, every single website would have, you know, these are the worst, 
these are the worst, best dress, worst dress. That was it. Yeah. You don't read many worst dress now. And I think something I found very interesting when I was the fashion features editor at the Sunday Times, I had a column called Wardrobe Mistress where people would write into me and ask me to solve their fashion dilemmas. And what I found so interesting and actually invaluable about that time is I'd have people writing to me from the age of 15 to 75 and the specifics and the budgets would change. You know, they'd be looking for something for uh, their son's wedding and they didn't want to look frumpy or they'd be going to their high school graduation. High school graduation, listen to me. What is it in the UK? <laughs> I mean, none of this existed when I was at school, so I, I, I don't know. I barely have... went to school, Pandora. I have no Second, clue. Secondary school leaving day, whatever it's called <laughs> in the UK. And they'd say, you know, I, I, I want to look like cool and I don't have any boobs and all that stuff. But what came through most of the time, all of the time, was that it wasn't really about what they were wearing. It was about feeling like they got it right. And there was mm. such a fear in getting it wrong. And people, friends and family would ask me all the time, like, do you, is is this okay? Like, have I got this right? And I, I, I've never, which is one of the reasons actually why I was found it a little bit tricky working in fashion is I've never believed in rules. I've never been snobby about fashion. I truly do not care what people wear if they feel great in it. Where I'm interested in what people wear is when they don't feel like themselves and they don't feel comfortable. Yeah. And that's what I found fascinating about it. Um, and I also think clothes are a brilliant way of self-expression. My relationship with them has changed a lot since 10 years ago. I shop a lot less and I try and buy a lot more secondhand. But I absolutely don't see any shame in shopping. I think it could be really fun. It's more mm. just that I think we're doing it at a terrifying rate culturally. Oh, <laughs> absolutely terrifying. Um, and let's talk about happiness for a moment. Um, obviously, this podcast is called Happy Place, which I know is quite low itself, which I don't mind at all because it is something that, you know, everybody will have a different take on. Um, often we think of it like we've already discussed as this sort of final destination, which we all know doesn't exist, but it's a myth that kind of just has this undercurrent through life. Um, and you put a, an interesting stat that I had never read before in there, and it's from a psychologist called Daniel Levitin. And he says, um, happiness declines in your 30s, creeps back up in your 50s and peaks at 82. Now, I'd never seen this sort of research before. And I and I does make total sense when you look at experiencing and also how we're imbibing in in life. And also, I guess, at the point early 30s. Right. Am I right? Mm, mm, yes. 33. Okay, so you're 33, I'm 40 next year. So in our 30s, we have such high expectations because there's so much going on. It might be perhaps when you start a family. It might be perhaps when you really get your teeth into a career that you've always lusted after. It might be perhaps when you have your first home. And the expectations, I don't know, but from my point of view, seem to be getting higher for people. Would you say that's accurate? I think the expectations for everything to be of order at the same time is higher, rather than us being able to say, okay, well, that thing's great at the moment, that thing's not great. I'm actually a bit suspicious of Daniel Levitin's theory. So it's the theory of U-shaped happiness, which is that you're happiest at the beginning and near the end of your lives. I can definitely see why you're happiest at the beginning. My two-year-old is, I mean, what does she have to worry about? You know, she's living her best life. But I think where that theory, again, I think this 
theory doesn't really hold up when you think about ambiguity because basically what that theory says is that your 30s and 40s are most stressful because that's the time when most people obviously not all but most people have their highest mortgage they have young-ish children they are busiest at their job you know they're in the best years of their job and um, they have elderly parents so just the amount on them stress-wise is really really high but I don't think that necessarily being the most stressed means that you are the least happy. Mm. I think that I think we need to stop seeing those things as separate things. I think you can feel, I mean, stress is also a word that has been so, ex, you know, overextended. It means oh, yeah. a lot of different things to different people. But just because it's a time when you have the most obligations, I don't think necessarily has to mean it's the time when you're least happy. So I'm not, I'm not convinced by that theory, especially because I think definitely I, I, I wonder what he'd have to say about now, because I think in the pandemic, people who are older in the vulnerable category definitely oh, aren't living their... Terrible ha- time. Yeah, That's my awful. parents are definitely not like, woo, it's the, it's yeah. the decade of our lives. <laughs> I mean, maybe he's alluding more towards contentment, but has kind of just used the word happiness because it's something that people, I guess, treasure slightly more. But maybe there's a correlation between that contentment in you know, younger life and older life because we've kind of, we've been through it all, we've done it, we, we care less. I think totally, I think that's absolutely part of it. And also security and responsibility is you are less responsible, obviously you're not responsible for anything when you're tiny and you tend to have fewer responsibilities when you're in, say, your 80s. And you have kind of a physical security, most people, hopefully, and also a mental peace of mind, as you say, you know, those those years are done where you're striving for jobs or worrying about education or all of those years ahead of you. Um, but maybe I just personally disagree with it because I don't really want to think that this period of my life is just going to be worrying about the future. I, I, I want yeah. to... I think I'd like to think that we can have those pockets, those those happy places along the journey. Like I think of the ha- my happy place as, well, this is my happy place. It's like a particular time on a Sunday, a particular place I am with my family rather than happy place being like static. So, oh, I'll get my happy place when I'm 80. Oh, it doesn't exist. I, you know, I don't think that is, it's never a fixed thing, is it? it you know, it comes and goes, it's, it's moments of unexpected joy of just looking out the window for it could be two seconds of happiness. I think that's where we get it wrong is we think that it is even when we ask someone, are you happy now? You could say yes. And then 10 seconds later, feel like shit. Or, you know, I think most of the stories we read about depression or whatever, you know, when people have talked about me, the headlines always end up being, I was really depressed and now I'm happy. And it's like, well, I might have been happy for five minutes yesterday, but I feel not great today. So I think it's just how we mm. frame happiness and we look at it in such a weird, fixed way. It's, it's so bizarre. But, um, but again, maybe, maybe with old Daniel Levitin's um, comment, 82 is a place where we are worrying less about if we have got it right or not. I think it's quite interesting to think about the fact that 25% of babies born now are going to live to 100. So maybe at 82, they'll still feel 
in fine fettle. Like yeah. they've got ages and ages to go. So maybe they'll still be worrying about True. whether or not they're doing it right. Maybe he'll have to change his theory to 101. Is he the, will. The Endless age. worry for us all in the future. Um, <laughs> Pandora, it's been so lovely to talk to, to, uh, to you today. I've been so looking forward to it. And it is such a, a wonderful book to, you know, to pick through these different subjects and to just take a, a real acute look at modern day life. I, I found it a really interesting read. So thank you so much and, and take care. Thank you so much, Fern. Ah, oh, Pandora, it's always a stimulating, rewarding conversation. Thank you so much. If you're thirsty for more, Pandora does a great podcast called The High Low, which I know a lot of you love, with Dolly Alderton, who has been on this very podcast. So you could also go back and listen to that in our archives if you fancy it. But The High Low, go check it out. They're an awesome pair. The link is in the show notes. Now, we've got a couple more episodes in this series before we take a short break. They are two phenomenal guests you're gonna love them i'm saying no more but you can get them first when you subscribe you can do that on spotify apple Podcasts, or any number of free podcast apps thanks again to pandora to my producer matt hill at rethink audio and yes of course always you lovely lot i wouldn't forget you ever i'll see you next week When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.